All right, uh, book of Galatians, please. Let's turn there. Galatians chapter 1 will be in verses 11 to 17. <clears throat> Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. We started this series last spring, and now we're back after uh, seven sermons on the church. And we'll keep in Galatians until the end of November when we'll start with our uh, Christmas Advent series. And Christmas is on a Sunday this year. Did you know that? We'll have church, so don't make any other plans. We'll be here. Uh, In Galatians, I had preached through verse 12, but I want to go back to verse 11. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, having completed my chores, I sat on the deck enjoying a glorious 60-degree afternoon day, and I was reading um, out of a book written in the 1500s, and I read this. God is that one spiritual and infinitely perfect essence whose being is of himself eternal. He's the only God. He has no body. He's spirit. He's infinitely perfect in every way, every attribute. He's perfect in holiness and in love. And he is of himself eternally. That is, nobody contributed anything to him. He in himself has always existed of himself. No beginning, no end. And so there is none like him. And I... Hopefully, like you, have communion with him. We know him. And there is no joy like thinking about him. And right now, the joy I had yesterday on that deck is just a little taste of the joy to come in all eternity of knowing him. That one day, this faith will give way to sight. This Knowing but in part will give way to eternal, infinite pleasure with him who is the one spiritual, infinitely perfect essence and whose being is of himself eternally. How can we enjoy him? Well, it's only through Christ. That's it. The only way to know this one spiritual, infinitely perfect essence whose being of himself eternally isn't by you kind of half-heartedly hoping it turns out okay. It isn't by your baptism. It isn't by you being the parents of a certain child or attending a certain church. It isn't by you attaining some level of human goodness It's only because God sent his son and because he died and because he rose again from the dead and because he is seated at the right hand of God and because he'll return to set up his kingdom here on earth and dwell with his people forever. It's only Christ. And the only way to Christ is faith, losing all hope in you, in others, in anything but Jesus. That's the only way you can know him. 
who is one spiritual, infinitely perfect essence, whose being is of himself eternally, who is joy and peace and power and goodness. So that's what Galatians is all about. It's about access, acceptance with God through Christ. It's about Paul waging war against those within the church who we'll always have with us, who always think that there's something that we need to do in addition to what Jesus did. Because they want to gain people, because they want people to follow them, because of their pride, maybe money, they'll always lie within the church, to the church, and say, yes, Jesus, but... Yes, Jesus, but baptism. Yes, Jesus, but, but women can't wear slacks. Men have to have beards. And so Paul is waging good war, fighting the good fight for the sake of God's people to make plain that the only way to him is Christ by simple faith. That's it. That's what this book's about. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's read verses 11 to 17. I'll pray, and then we'll get a bit more background here. Four, it's verse 11, chapter 1 of Galatians. Four, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. Let's pray. Righteous are you, O Lord. You're righteous. You're perfect. You're perfect in every way. And so is your word. And so, God, give us zeal that consumes us. May we hate those who hate your word. May we hate those who corrupt it, lying about it. Father, your promises are well tried and proven true, and so help us to love them. We are small, despised, and yet we will not forget your precepts. And so, O oh God, because your testimonies are righteous forever, give us understanding now by your Holy Spirit that we may live. Amen. So Galatians about the doctrine of justification. What is justification? Do you know it? Do you know what it is? It's salvation itself. It is the heart of this gospel. And in chapter 2, verse 16, he explains very simply what this justification is. So look there a moment. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
So justification is acceptance with God, though we're sinners. That's what it is. It is you being accepted, forgiven, counted as perfectly righteous by your Creator, because it is contrasted with you in His death and resurrection, and that is contrasted with you trying to find acceptance by your works. It's either by Christ's works or your works. So Paul writes to defend this doctrine against those who would say that acceptance with God is based on a mixture of God's grace in Christ and you keeping the law, particularly circumcision or food or anything else. That the way to God is both law and grace. And so in the first two chapters, Paul goes into this biographical retelling of his life in order to show that the gospel came from God and in order to help us to know that this gospel that came from God is only by grace through faith in Christ. That's it. So Paul uses his life in order to show that the opponents who are distorting the gospel, if you see in verse 6, they've astonished, Paul's astonished how quickly they deserted Christ because they've left for, in verse 7, a distorted gospel. Paul uses his life to disprove the liars. Now, here's the thing with us that you got to learn about us, learn about you, is how easily you and I could be duped into believing something that sounds very true but is tainted with a lie and so ultimately distorted. Listen to what Luther says. Oh, good Lord. He's commenting on these verses. Oh, good Lord. What horrible and infinite mischiefs may one only argument easily bring, which so pierces a man's conscience when God withdraws his grace that in one moment he loses all together. By this subtlety, then, the false apostles did easily deceive the Galatians by being not fully established and grounded, but yet weak in the faith. Oh, good Lord, what horrible and infinite mischiefs may come by one argument. Paul came and preached the truth that you're justified only by what Christ did. These people come in and one little thing they say, and they quickly run off after them. And what you should realize is that you're sheep. We're sheep. We depend on the truth being preached by shepherds who will defend us against the subtleties because we're rather easily duped. And so you depend on preaching and teaching to defend you. Don't you know that? I say that so you might know your weakness because we're so proud. You're so proud thinking, I just need Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. I'm good enough. And man, I tell you, when I hear people say that, I know that they believe a lot of lies. Because they just think they're good. And so they're being duped by this lie. And the reason that they're being duped by this lie is because they were told by these false teachers that the gospel that the apostles preached, the gospel that Paul preached, didn't come from God. It has origin in man. Look at verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
Verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Then again, down in verse 16, well, uh, 15 and 16, that the God who had set Paul apart before he was born, the God who had called him by his grace, that God was pleased to reveal his son to him. And so in these opening verses, Paul is going to defend the gospel by defending its divine origin. It didn't come from man. This gospel of simple justification, acceptance with God, by faith in Christ only, didn't find its origin in men, but was revealed by God. And so for these first two chapters, Paul is going to give his own life story to prove that point. So that's where we are. Paul defending the divine origin of the gospel so that the people might not be duped into believing lies that would lead to hell. And so we get this autobiographical look at Paul in order to defend the gospel, in order to love the sheep. So let's look at that. All right, let me start like this. What do you think you need today in this world with all of the craziness? Yeah, truth, okay. I'm thinking in, in the pulpit, how many of you would wish that we, as pastors and elders, would spend more time talking about the cultural garbage? Why don't they preach more against the stuff going on out there? Why don't they sh- expose the lies in the world, which we do from time to time? We live in a troubled world. There's just utter, like, mind-blowing foolishness and wickedness going around us, right? Our world hates God. God has placed us in this world. He put us in this world to be salt and light, to have an impact. And will we have an impact if what the church does is just constantly preach about the sins out there? Well, should, we should do that from time to time, but mostly my concern is that you know the gospel. Because I wonder, do you? Do you know it? I mean, do you know it? If we were to ask you in the hallway, what's the gospel? What would your answer be? Do you know it? Let's look at Paul. Paul lived in a day just like our day. The ruling elites were wicked. I mean, they were corrupt and godless. The sexual immorality of Paul's day was the same as our day. I mean, there's a reason that the New Testament talks a lot about homosexuality. It's because it was rampant. The education was godless, pagan, decadent. Paul's day is very similar to our day. And yet, do you see the apostles, do you see Paul spending their time writing letters, rebuking the world, talking about the corruption of the leaders, talking constantly about the sin out there, or are they preaching within the church about the sin in here and our need for the gospel? What what are they looking at? In here. 
Paul, by the Holy Spirit, though he lived in a day just like ours, is rebuking the sins of the saints of God in order that you and I might have more love for God, more faith in Christ, to live more holy lives. So that's why I wanted to preach through the book of Galatians. I want to make sure that you hear very clearly the truth of the gospel, in particular, the doctrine of justification by faith. Not just so that you can have like knowledge in here, but in your guts, in your bones, that you love Christ more because you see this truth and can't believe for the life of you why he would welcome you into that. So I want you to be more careful for your own soul than you are to know the details of critical race theory. I want you to be as concerned for your relationship and desire for your heavenly father as you are with the senility of our rulers. I want you to have a greater concern of how you are walking before God than how the world is. And to look forward with delight to an eternity with him. Not because you want to escape the world, but because you want to be with him. And justification is how you get to him. And so our foremost concern should be the gospel. Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15 of first importance, top tier. Nothing more dear, no greater treasure than Jesus and him crucified. And this gospel is that the only way to God is by Christ's work, justification. So justification is for Christian like the sun is for agriculture. There is no life without the sun. There is no plant growth. There is no physical life possible on this earth without the S-U-N, sun. And so there is no life for us in God without the Son of God's justifying work. To be a Christian and to remain ignorant of justification like faith is to be American and despise apple pie, the 4th of July, the stars and stripes, and so on. Like what defines us is this doctrine, this justifying doctrine. And justification deals with how you as a sinner are accepted by God. So look at verse 4 of chapter 1. He gave himself for our sins. There's the doctrine of justification. Christ gave himself and so took your sins. All of your sins were credited to him. He became sin who knew no sin. With whose sin? Yours and mine. He paid the penalty for them, the legal, just requirement of death. He paid. So your sins are forgiven. That's something. All of them. All of your lies. All of your lusts. All of your greed. All of your gossip. All of your unbelief and despair. All of your marital fighting. All of your terrible parenting. All of your yelling at your parents. All of your refusal to do anything good for your brothers and sisters in the church. All of it's forgiven because the Son of God died. 
And then if, if you didn't know this, Jesus lived on earth for 30 some years, right? Did he ever disobey God? Never. Ever. He was never proud once. Imagine that. He never looked on a woman and desired to bed her or a man once. He didn't do what he did in order to get more money. He had no greed ever. When somebody was in need, do you know what he did? He took the time to help them. Every time. Perfectly. With right motives. And so not only is all of your sin credited to him, all of his perfect goodness and obedience is credited to you. You have both complete removal and cleansing of sin and complete crediting to your account all of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. That's justification. That's the gift of God. Now let me ask you something. What part do your works have in that? (laughs) What a joke. Can you add anything to that? Can you? Huh? Nope. And that's what the false teachers were saying. Yes, Jesus, but you can't eat shellfish. Because if you eat shellfish, then you're not justified, not accepted by God. What a joke. And so the lie of the enemies of Christ wolves dressed as shepherds was to mix our own goodness. Now, kids, you like juice boxes? For whatever reason, those are all the rage among the kids these days. If I put one drop of poison in your juice box, are you going to drink it? How about this? If I go to your kitty litter box and just take a little smidge of the kitty's poop and put it in your juice box, will you drink it? Why not? Yeah, because if you mix even the smallest amount of impurity in that which is pure, it corrupts the whole, right? And so if you try to mix one smidge of your impure goodness in Christ, you ruin the whole. Because what you're saying is Christ isn't enough. That's what's going on here. And so Paul says that they're teaching a false gospel. And the way that he does it is by showing that the gospel that he preached came from God and not from man. And we should believe that which purely comes from God. And so Paul's biography is an example of that. Now look at Paul says that the gospel that he preached is not man's gospel, verse 11. He didn't receive it from man in verse 12, but he received it at the end of verse 12 through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Last week I mentioned that I was listening to a biography of Crazy Horse. Many of you thought it was Sitting Bull. You were wrong. Although he is a Lakota too and just as famous. But it's of Crazy Horse. And one of the things as I'm listening through it is that these Native Americans often sought visions. They went on vision quests. They would starve themselves and not drink water and walk days on end and stare at the sun until the spirits would give them a vision of what was going to happen. So Crazy Horse had several of these, he thought. 
is that kind of vision quest what Paul is talking about here in this revelation? Well, let's turn to Acts 9. So go back a couple books to the left to Acts chapter 9, and there we see recorded what Paul means by a revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 12 or in verse 16, pleased to reveal his son to me. In Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, we meet the same Paul here called Saul. Remember, the name Saul and Paul are the same name. One is Greek and one is Hebrew. So don't make much of that. So Saul, in verse 1, is breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So just stay there. Back in Galatians, Paul says that he was violently persecuting the church and trying to destroy it. So that's, the, that's what he's talking about here. He's actually going house to house, hunting Christians in order to arrest them, have them imprisoned or executed. And then... As he was headed to Damascus to do this very thing, Jesus revealed himself to him. Jesus actually came. This wasn't like a a trance. This wasn't a dream. This was a physical appearing of Jesus who had been raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, came back and showed himself to Paul. Physically. Right? This isn't a mystical vision. This is a physical, hello, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And so in that moment, that revelation to Paul, that unveiling to Paul that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the crucified, raised, reigning Lord from God over all, brought Paul to eternal life and simultaneously appointed Paul to go and preach the same gospel that the other apostles were preaching. All that to say is, who revealed Jesus to Paul? Who revealed this gospel of salvation through faith in the resurrected Christ alone to Paul? Did Peter? Did John? God did. Jesus did. So, the, Paul, the gospel that Paul preached, where was its headwaters, its source? Jesus, directly from God to him. And so this revelation that Jesus himself came and showed Paul, showed him that he is the Son of God. He did die on the cross. He did rise from the dead. He did ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he himself was coming and taking Paul from being a hater of God and his people to being somebody who loved Jesus and would travel the world telling other people about this same man. And that came from God, not from man. And that's what he's going to spend two chapters showing in his own biography. So let me take a pause here real quick and apply that revelation to you. Should you and I seek or expect similar revelation as Paul? That is, is Paul's example here to be something that's kind of a norm that the rest of us can share in and should seek? Jesus coming to us and physically appearing to us to prove to us that he is true. Not at all. 
This was unique to the apostles in order to confirm to us that the word that they would preach and write is God's word. And so the reason that there are no more apostles is because God's word is written. It's complete. And there'll be no more apostles. And so it is good to seek intimacy with Jesus. It is good to want more experience of him, but we're not going to have this kind. Where do we get God's revelation to us? Where do we go to experience intimacy and communion with Jesus Christ? The Bible. This is where we meet Jesus. We're not to focus on subjective, emotionalistically based, personal, private revelation of Jesus, just like Paul. Instead, just like Paul, we can have communion with the same resurrected, reigning Lord in his written word. The truth of the love of God for us that came to Paul. Look at verse 15. Paul realized when he saw Jesus that God had chosen him before the foundation of the world, before he was even born. That God had called him to this living faith in Christ and sent him as an apostle because of God's love. That this eternal love of God that chooses us for adoption in Christ, do you know who else has that? All who have the same faith in Christ. And so our experience to Paul won't be similar, but is just the same. This love of God that God set apart in Paul before he was born, that God in time came to Paul and revealed his son and brought him into saving relationship with him, that same God who sent Paul out is our God with the same love for us, the same choosings of, of us, the same calling of us, the same revelation of Jesus Christ to us in his word. This is the same thing that God gave to Paul, you have this divine love revealed to you in his written word, proclaiming to you Jesus' love in his death and resurrection. And it's yours. It's yours. And God isn't whispering in this word of the justifying love of Christ, is he? Paul damns people, curses them, if they twist his gospel to show it to you the love of God in Christ who justifies you. He's not whispering to you. He's not hiding it from you. He's not playing a game with you. He is saying it very clearly to you of his love for you in Christ. Do you believe him? Now look at Paul's life as an illustration of this salvation by Christ alone, not at all with his works. He shows it in two ways. Start with verse 14. Paul was a like zealously faithful religious Jew. There was nobody better than Paul in his day. You know how you have like the power rankings in the various sports? Sorry to use sports analogies, but that's what I like. So you should like what I like. And so week in and week out, the best team will be ranked one and on down, right? 
And so pretend that they had like rankings of up-and-coming Jewish boys. Paul was number one. He broke the record for weeks at the top spot. There's no better Jew than Paul in his day. He was advancing in Judaism beyond, beyond many of his own age, among his people. Nobody matched Paul's extreme zeal for the Jewish traditions. And yet, even Paul came to realize that none of that counted for anything with his acceptance to God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet even we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And if Jews know that they can't be justified by the works, and Paul's the best Jew, if anybody could get into God's favor by their goodness, it would be Paul. You remember Philippians 3. Paul lists out this list of good things that he's done. Nobody matched his law-keeping. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's in the right group. He's a Pharisee, full of zeal, under the law, blameless. And then what? All that is garbage as it regards acceptance with God. I count all of that as loss. Nothing. Refuse. Count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, Christ Jesus my Lord. To be found in him, and I have no righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which only comes through faith in Christ. How does that apply to you? Let me, let me go back to Luther. Today is Reformation Sunday, if you didn't know. It's a day that we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. I'm using some Luther. Luther, if you didn't know, be, before he became a, a Christian, was a Catholic priest and a monk. And he was like the best. He was as monk-ish as any monk ever. I mean, he was totally committed. Listen to what he says. I crucified Christ daily in my monkish life and blasphemed God through my false faith. But outwardly, I was not as other men. What he's saying is outwardly, I was better than everybody. I don't think he's being hyperbolic here. Outwardly, I wasn't as other men. I wasn't an extortioner. I wasn't unjust. I wasn't a whoremonger. I kept chastity. I kept poverty. I kept obedience. I made myself free from the cares of this life. I only gave my life to fasting, to watching, to praying, to saying of masters, and such like. Notwithstanding, in the meantime, I fostered under this cloaked holiness and trust in mine own righteousness, continual mistrust, doubtfulness, fear, hatred, and blasphemy against God. And this my righteousness was nothing else but a filthy puddle, the very kingdom of the devil, For Satan loves such saints as I was. He accounts them his dear darlings who destroy their own bodies and soul and deprive themselves of all the blessings of God's gift. See what he's saying? All of my fasting, all of my seeking God, the devil loved. 
because it was all about me. All of my being a good little boy, being a good little girl, Satan loves to keep you in that bondage because inwardly you don't love God. You don't love Christ. You're focused solely on you. And so Paul is illustrating that for us. If anybody would qualify for acceptance of God, it would be Paul. And even Paul knew that that was nothing. It's Jesus only. Look at verse 13, though. Just as Paul and his moral religious law-keeping would be the most qualified, so in regards to God's grace, we might consider that no one was as unsavable as Paul. His testimony contains both ends of the spectrum. What do I mean? Paul hunted Christians. He was an assassin. He was a hired gun. During the Reformation, John Calvin had a pastor training institute, a college to train pastors. And most of the pastors they trained were French people who had escaped France in order to come and be trained, in order to go back to France and plant churches and pastor them there. One-third of all of the men that Calvin trained and sent back to France were murdered by the French Catholics. One-third of them. One-third of them. During the training, they would train the wives where the safe houses in France were that would lead them back because the way that the French Catholic assassins worked, they would have their names, and they would go into their bedrooms at night and murder them with knives with their wives in the bed. And so during the pastoral training, part of their coursework was teaching the wives how to get back to France safely through these safe houses with their children. Many a time, on Calvin's doorstep in the middle of the night would be a woman covered in her husband's blood who had just come back from France, her husband murdered in her bed that night or a week before or something. Paul was like a French Catholic assassin. That was his gig. That's what he did. You think he could qualify? I mean, he... He'd be disqualified for the grace of God, right? Somebody like that? No hope for him, and I don't want him to go to heaven. I want him to go to hell. Slit my husband's throat in bed while we were sleeping. And believed he was giving service to God doing it. Disqualified for grace, right? No hope for him, right? Beyond the reach of the mercy of Jesus Christ, right? No. So Paul's life illustrates the gospel in both extremes. Nobody but more moral, more zealous. And yet that counts for nothing. And nobody more atrocious. Nobody more wicked. And yet not beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that something? And so Paul's life both in that he didn't get the gospel from any man. It came directly from Jesus. Proves that this gospel of freely being accepted by God based on Jesus alone is true. And then Paul's life as a good, moral, zealous, religious man 
full of works that were pleasing to God, counts for nothing. And Paul's murderous, zealous killing of Jesus' beloved, blood-bought people did not remove him from coming to Christ. And so, is God done with you? Have you sinned too much? I tell you, is there anything more stupid for you to think that you've done too much and he can't save you? I've done it again. God must not love me. What a stupid thought. I mean, that's from the pit of hell. Right? Your thought should be, I've done it again. Praise God for Jesus. Come in Jesus and forgive me and cleanse me. I don't want to do this anymore. Help me. Not, the Father must not love me anymore. We sang it this morning. When you are condemned in your flesh, when the enemy brings these lies to you, when the world tells you that the only way to acceptance with God is by keeping the woke moral code, what are you hearing? Go to Jesus. That's it. Flee to Christ. That's it. Why? Because that's what God says. And uh, I started this fall meeting with a group of younger men in our church, hoping that in the coming years of meeting with them, they may be more useful and beneficial to the church. And it's very simple. We're talking about our lives, but we're also just reading through the book of First Timothy. And the book of First Timothy starts out by Paul explaining to Timothy that he's left them at the church in Ephesus so that he might confront false teachers in the church. He urges Timothy to remain in Ephesus to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Can you imagine that? Uh, Timothy, I know you depend on me a lot, and I'm going to leave you here because there's some bad dudes who are teaching bad stuff in the church, and when I leave, I want you to go to them and tell them to stop it. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. So we were reading that on this past Tuesday, and then I gave them an example of what this looked like. This is a obituary of a man that I grew up who cut my hair, Chuck Dykstra. My mom knows him. We called him Chuck the Barber. I didn't know this, but Chuck was an elder in my current pastor hero's church, Tim Bailey. And their church had some wickedness going on. And one of those was an elder who was a woman who hated Tim Bailey and wanted to get him removed. And she came to an elder meeting with pages of reasons why the church was going down under Tim and that they needed to fire their pastor in an elder meeting. Now, Chuck was a gentle man. He was big, six foot four, Dutch, strong, like the greatest world outdoorsman. That's why we went to him. We loved hearing his stories. We loved sitting there. He's kind of like a fatherly figure. But he was quiet and gentle. He wasn't a fighter. And he wasn't like high college educated. 
no offense to any of you who aspire to be a barber, but he was a barber. He didn't have a PhD. He didn't have a master's. I doubt he had an undergraduate degree. So a soft-spoken barber guy, and he's sitting in this elder meeting as this very learned, well-prepared woman reads out all of this stuff against Tim in great detail. A lot of it bunk, but the church was shrinking, the budget was small, and her conclusion was, Timothy, if you keep preaching the way you are, we're going to go bankrupt. Now, it's impossible for the pastor to do anything there. Right? If he were to spoke up, that's it. After Tim tells it, a minute or two of quietness, Chuck opened his Bible like to read, and said, I'd like to read something. And he just read, no other comment. I'd like to read something. He, said, he read, 1 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but waiting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober-minded in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Chuck closed his Bible and then said quietly, that's what's going on here. <laughs> what's the point? Well, in that Tuesday morning elder meeting, Joe, or training meeting, Joe, a- after we read that, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in this meeting on Tuesday. It was really, that's powerful. I'd encur- uh, if you can find it, I'd encourage you to read it. But what Joe said is, the effect that reading that had on, on his life is, I need to learn God's word better. Remember that, Joe? I, I need to know God's word. If I'm ever in something like that, I know where to turn in my Bible and just read it. That's all that Chuck did. Now, Chuck, this happened in like the 80s. He just passed away. He was probably in his early, mid-40s. He wasn't an old, wise man. He was a young man. And yet he knew God's word enough to, where to go. He didn't yell He didn't come out with some great eloquent argument. He just read four verses of the Bible. That's it. So that's what Paul's doing here. Do you know God's word enough to know when somebody brings in a subtle error so you don't quickly desert Christ? Young men, is this what you're giving yourself to because you're going to be married one day and your wife and children are going to depend on you? Older women of the church, do you know God's word enough to help a younger woman who's struggling as a young mother? Pulling her hair out, suffering postpartum depression. Do you have something ready of God's word to be a help to her, a comfort to her? That's what Paul is urging us. Why? Because the Bible is from God. Because the Bible is our defense. The Bible is our weapon. And so do we know it? Let me get at it this way in closing. Paul is angry in this letter. You know that? He's ticked. Look at verse 6. I am astonished at you. Look at verse 8. 
if anyone preaches a gospel contrary, I curse him. He's cursing. He's angry enough that he's cursing. He's mad. Why is he mad? Let me ask you this. Why do you get mad? What raises your ire? What causes you to curse? If you're like me, it's when people don't do what I want or what I expect. Minor irritations royally flip me out. Shouldn't we get mad when God's word is lied about? Because we love God's word. Do we love God's word? Do you love it? Now, the application isn't to make a plan to learn God's word in the next three weeks and read 10 chapters a day and memorize a book of the Bible a week. Good luck. Take a five-year, ten-year view of faithfully reading the Bible day in and day out. When you miss a day, you don't beat yourself up. You just get at it the next day. You just read it. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. In five years, you will be really pleased that you've learned the Bible a bit better. And in 10 years, you'll actually have some usefulness here. You'll be helpful. That's the application. The Bible. It's not man's. It's God's. And in it, we learn of how we can be accepted by God and what he's like. And it fills us with joy. So give yourselves to it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who doesn't leave us in the dark, but has revealed your word through your Holy Spirit to these prophets and apostles, carrying them along by your Holy Spirit, preserving your word truly and purely across the centuries that we might have it. And in it, we find life because we find your Son and his grace and this truth of justification, which is the greatest thing in the world reveals your heart, your essence, your character to us. And so, God, help us to be more faithful in loving you and your word and giving ourselves to the reading of it and the study of it and to be more helpful so that we might be teachers in the church, not so easily moved off truth because we're able to be duped, but defending the sheep. And so, God, do that today for us. Restrain us from just going about in our own flesh. Help us to take the long view in it. But, God, fill us with a love for your word. This is in Jesus' name. Amen.